wonder if you, how many of you are familiar with the name Niccolo Machiavelli, who's a Renaissance-era philosopher, politician, and writer. His writing greatly influenced political science. Machiavelli believed that to be effective, political leaders needed to be ruthless, they needed to be tyrannical, they didn't need to show empathy uh, or, or right sense of justice. His book, uh, The Prince, it's essentially a, a short manual of advice for princes on how to not finish last. And the answer was never to be overly devoted to kindness, generosity, fruit of the Spirit, really. And to know how to borrow every single trick employed by the most wicked, terrible, dastardly, unscrupulous people who have ever lived. Machiavelli knew that the, where that counterproductive ideology and obsession with kindness came from, originated from, is, is that the West grew up with this Christian story of Jesus of Nazareth. He was a very kind man from Galilee who always treated people well. But Machiavelli pointed out an inconvenient detail to this sentimental tale of triumph of goodness through meekness. From a political perspective or a practical perspective, Jesus' life was a disaster. This gentle soul was trampled upon and humiliated and disregarded and mocked Judged in his lifetime and outside of any divine assistance, he was one of history's greatest losers, according to Machiavelli. The Christian faith is a paradox. In order to be truly free, we have to submit ourselves to God. In order to be a someone, a somebody, we have to make ourselves nothing, and we have to maintain that. Jesus' yoke is easy, and his burden is light, and yet he also says that in this world we will have many trials. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And on and on and on these paradoxes go for the Christian life. You see, the apostles knew that the Christian life was filled with paradoxes, and so they embraced them, and they're showing those to us in their writings. One of the greatest paradoxes is Christ himself, the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things together meek and mild, powerful and penetrating. What do we make of him and his ministry? What does it say to us? What does it teach us each and every day? Well, I thought this might be a good time for us to shift gears from our 
study in Genesis just for a little while and spend some time in a gospel. The plan is for us to alternate back and forth between Genesis and Mark, and then we'll sprinkle in some other uh, teachings in there as well. Does that sound okay to you all? Good, because if it doesn't, you can stay till 1030 and hear something else. Uh, while I was away in California, I did, I, you know, they're always talking about your congregation, your congregation. And so I, I just want to say how much um, I do love each and every one of you and I'm grateful for you. And, and this is truly my congregation. And I feel like we, we have such a great, um, we're building such a great thing here. And I'm, I'm very grateful to each and every one of you. How about we pray and commit all of this to the Lord and then we'll begin in Mark's gospel. Father, we are grateful for this body that you have put together. We thank you, Father, that we are not just a collection of individuals, but we are, in fact, a body under whom Christ is our head. And we are made up of families and singles and Everything in between, Father, this is young people and old, and yet we gather together under one banner, and that banner is Christ. And we gather together with this purpose of seeking to know you better and to grow in the likeness of Christ. And so, Father, as we turn to this, the gospel of Mark, your holy and infallible word, we ask that it would teach us, that it would inform us, that it would open our eyes, and Father, that it would bring transformation to us, again, as we seek to grow into the likeness of Christ, not again as individuals, but together as a community, that we would see the blessing for which you have given us. So Father, we ask that all distractions would be laid aside and that we would pay attention with uh, careful ears. And loving hearts, for we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We're thinking about paradoxes and how important I think we need to be aware of that in this day and age. A day where, even as David was praying, a, a day where Christians are feeling the pinch from society and, and, and from culture closing in on us, so to speak. What will be our response as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Israel's response was to believe that God had abandoned them. Or their belief was that everything was fine, even though the prophets were constantly telling them that everything was not fine. Truly a case of let him or her who has an ear hear. I believe our time in Mark will be well served as we look at this life of Christ, the servant and the Savior. How can we trust in the sovereignty of God with our hope in Christ and what he has accomplished for us? And look out into a society and a culture that is in desperate need of truth because it does not know truth and, and, and face it not as, as a warrior on a rampage or a, or a warrior coming in judgment, but as a, a servant who seeks to model their lives 
after their master, and our master is Christ. Before we get carried away, I want to spend some time familiarizing ourselves with this book. Mark is, most people believe, is the first gospel that is written. It's written by John Mark, who is a a cousin of Barnabas. Mark himself is a story of failure and redemption. As a young man, he goes out on a mission journey with Paul, and then he abandons the group and goes back to Jerusalem, and we read about that in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. He goes back to Jerusalem, and, and Paul is frustrated with him, and, uh, and, and he wants to go on a second journey, and, and Paul is saying, absolutely not, I don't want him, he's faithless, he will not stay with us. And he, there ends up being this huge rift between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, his good friend, and it causes them to separate ways. And Barnabas takes his cousin, and they go together, he and Mark, and then Paul takes Silas, and they go in a different direction. And, and then later, John Mark is connected with the Apostle Peter. And if there was ever a person to be connected with after you have just failed your boss, it would be the Apostle Peter, the very man who denied his Lord and his friend uh, almost in his face. Peter was part of this, uh, we read in Acts chapter 12, that uh, when Peter is miraculously released from prison, he runs to this home group that's meeting together. If you remember, the little girl sees him and runs back and tells everyone and doesn't actually let Peter in, and then she has to go back and let him in. Well, the house that they were meeting in is actually... Mark's mother's home. And so Peter has known Mark probably from a young age. And obviously their relationship grows because we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Peter calls Mark my son as he's sending greetings to the church. Mark served as an interpreter for Peter and rightfully would be the one who wrote this gospel I can only imagine the the building up and the pouring in that Peter was doing uh, for Mark in his life, seeing himself in this young man, needing encouragement, needing grace, giving hope that not all is lost. Uh, Though you had departed and, and, and made everyone think that you were a failure, not all is lost, Mark. And in fact, Mark's relationship with Paul is later restored, and as Uh, Paul is in Rome in prison. Uh, Mark ends up serving him well there. And we read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now let's consider Mark's context as he's writing this gospel. Mark writes in Rome right after the death of Peter and uh, the persecution of Nero on the Christians uh, sometime between 60 and 70 AD. Uh, According to the Roman historian Tacitus, Nero had made the the Christians the scapegoats of the city uh, burning, and, and then that led to the slaughter of Christians on a massive scale so that the church was actually driven into the catacombs. And it was during this time of of desperation and and misery that Mark writes this gospel. What about his purpose? Mark is writing to encourage 
the Gentile church in Rome, he, he wanted them to see Christ as the suffering servant Savior. Say that five times fast. Uh, and he arranges his material to show Christ is the one who speaks and acts and delivers in the midst of crisis. He has no long genealogy. There's no birth narrative. There's only two of Jesus' longer discussions. Uh, Christ is all action in Mark. In fact, um, you know, if you've ever read through to the end of Mark, you notice there's a little note in your Bible after verse 8, and it says some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this conclusion because it kind of ties it up in a neat little bow, when in reality, it probably just ends on the cliffhanger, just as it just jumps in straight into the action, as we'll see next week. It kind of ends with questions, a lot of questions to be asked. And I think actually Mark probably did end at chapter 16, verse 8. And yet how fitting it is for this gospel of action and movement that that, that would be what's written to the Roman world, a, a community that prized action. He is a man of action. Mark is used, uh, he uses the historical present tense 150 times. Jesus comes. Jesus says, Jesus heals, all in the present tense. There are more miracles recorded in Mark's gospel than any of the other gospels. Everything is vivid, and it's, and it's fast-paced, and it's moving. He uses the word immediately 42 times. The life of Christ is busy, and it's moving so fast that in chapter 3 and chapter 6 of the gospel, it's pointed out that he barely has time to eat. And so the Roman world would say, good, this is good. This is someone we should listen to. Now, if you were to look for a, a key verse in Mark's gospel, many would consider it to be chapter 10, verse 45, which is our verse this morning. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for the many. One commentary on this verse says that this verse is part of the answer to the question, what will the gospel make of us? It will make us servants like the master, effective servants who do not run on theory but on action. He was and is Christ for the crisis. Now, just to set up our focus verse this morning, if you've got your Bibles with you, um, you can turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. I don't know what page that is in your Bible, but I'm sure you can find it. Chapter 10, verse 45, we need to understand the context into which this verse is speaking. In verses 35 to 41, we read that James and John, two of the three of the inner circle of, of Jesus' disciples, they come to Jesus privately and they ask him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like going to your boss and saying that, right? It's like, uh, you owe me something. And Jesus responds graciously, what do you want me to do for you? Grant us to sit on your right 
and on your left in your glory. Now, what made them ask this question? Come up a, a bit further to verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were, uh, they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's when James and John swoop in and make their request. It's, it's like a, a kid who hears that their grandparent has passed away. And the first thing they think of is, what am I going to inherit in the will? They've just heard Jesus explaining, not, not really even explaining. He's really preparing them for what is about to happen to them as a group because he's, he's thinking about them. He's preparing them for what's going to happen. And they're thinking only about themselves. <laughs> they are looking for prominence. They want a throne. They want power. It is this stark contrast to the humiliation that Jesus has just described of himself, handed over, mocked, spit on, flogged, and ultimately killed. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, we get that. You keep telling us about that, but, but let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the glory and the power and the reigning and the, and the authority Let's talk about that. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, their mommy has to come and ask this for them. <laughs> so here's the whole family. And they're asking Jesus, give us what we deserve. This is the prosperity gospel, is it not? The name it and claim it. What can Jesus do for you? He's a genie in a bottle. Let's stop and think here for a minute because I think we can say prosperity gospel and we can all think of Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland and think, yeah, 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 those people, they don't know. They're lost. But I think that prosperity gospel has very much so reached our own hearts in an affluent Western culture where we're constantly in comparison mode house, car, uh, children's education. But even more than that, 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 that it is an avoidance of any form of suffering. We just want to be happy and healthy and then leave us alone. So when things break down, we ask God immediately for relief. We don't take time to think about the purpose of it or, or how it can be used for God's glory. We have Romans 8.28 for a reason, to know that those serve a purpose, that suffering is for, not for nothing. It's bringing about perseverance. It's bringing about hope. 
I think of the quote from the Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which is probably dumb to use that quote, but it's a helpful quote because it's, he says, it is so good that war is so terrible, otherwise we'd grow fond of it. And I think that can be applied to our world. That if everything was just wonderful and grand and great, we would never have any desire of heaven. What? This is heaven on earth. We have everything we want. We have, and so when suffering and pain and difficulties and challenge and persecution come our way, we remember that we were not created for this life alone, but that there is a far greater, far more eternal one that we set our eyes and our hope on. And, and it, is a, it is a great tool. Not so that we can say, I'll fly away to glory. I just want to escape all of this. Which, coincidentally, I think they're singing in the next service. <laughs> I, sorry, I was hearing it down underneath, and I was just thinking about it, so it's in my head. I didn't mean to draw attention to that, but now I've done that. Um, but rather, if I, if I understand who God is, if I understand who I am, as a created image bearer of God, if I understand the purpose and the point of, of pain and suffering, then it's not that I just want to escape it. I just want it to be over with. I just want to, I just, let's just go to heaven. Let's just end it all. But actually we look out and we see people who are suffering just as we have before or just as we are in this moment. And we, we look with compassion and we know what the greater purpose is, that it's calling us to a life of, of reconciliation with God and restoration. And so we can look out on the world in its desperate need of truth and in its desperate need of, of, of understanding and hearing the truth of God. And we can speak into that in a helpful way. Well, Jesus responds to them, you don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup of which I will drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Now, so what is he talking about here? He's talking about his unique position as the mediator of the new covenant, which it has to be done by the God-man. It can't be done by just any human flesh. He has to drink the cup of God's wrath, which is poured out on all those who have rejected God, not because he has rejected the Father, but as the fulfillment of the picture of which we've been looking at in the book of Genesis, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and, and, and that his heel will be struck by the enemy. It is to bring us in, into fellowship all those who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in God that He will forgive and that He will save. And His baptism is the baptism of death, and, and, and it's, it's, it's truly immersion baptism. It's really a picture of uh, the flood in Noah's day or, 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 or the Egyptians being drowned when they're pursuing the Israelites, it's a symbolic of divine destruction. And James and John arrogantly say, we are able. <laughs> Which, of course, they are not. 
But then Jesus says this, the cup of which I drink, you will drink. And the baptism of, with which I will be baptized, you will be baptized. But didn't you, you just ask them that question before, assuming that their answer should have been no. But, but what does he mean by this? Even though these sons of Zebedee are naively overconfident in their ability to endure the kind of suffering that Jesus will go through, they will share in the Lord's suffering in the future. Again, it's not contributing to, to Jesus' unique mission of atonement for 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 those who put their faith in him, but, but it's, it's, it's that they will pay a painful price for the proclamation of the message. In fact, James is the first uh, apostle to be martyred. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. He's killed, he's beheaded by Herod. And, and John, he, you know, he doesn't die one of those horrible martyrs' death. I mean, he's put in, uh, out at Patmos, where he, writes the, where he writes Revelation. But think about what John had gone through. Having a church with disciples and you know, showing up on a Sunday morning and half of them didn't show up. Why? Because they'd been persecuted and killed. And then, having to, and then ministering into that and, and with a heavy and a broken heart over, over seeing the turmoil in the world. This is what Paul speaks about when he says in Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. It's not that Christ's afflictions are lacking in their effectiveness to save and redeem. But what is our role in God's redemptive plan because the the church and the followers of Christ will bear suffering as we do take the good news out across the street to the ends of the earth it's 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 foreordained by God and yet as we just said we tend to live our lives trying to avoid as much pain and discomfort as possible And so we need to be reminded of these truths. Not so that we are rushing headlong into persecution because we are rude or we are arrogant, but that we balance out gentleness and respect with holding fast to the truth. And we're trusting that God will provide all that we need as we seek to serve him for his glory. Then notice in verse 40, Jesus says, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is recognizing here where the Father has authority. His humble submission is a rebuke to the disciples' self-centered ambitions. Even the Son of Man, the Son of God, doesn't work in contrast with the will of his Father, nor does he exert any kind of influence 
where he could try and achieve his own wishes. But there's a oneness of will with the Father and the Son. Well, then the ten others hear about this. This coup by James and John for their request for power in the kingdom of heaven. And they become indignant with their brothers. They are mad. They are angry uh, at what they had attempted to do. Why? Because they felt like they were going against the, the teachings of Jesus? How dare you, James and John? Don't you know better? Don't you know he has to drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism? No. It's because they wanted positions of power and they hadn't thought of it earlier. Our parallel passage is Luke chapter 22. And I, I, think, I think there's two separate accounts. I think this one in Mark actually happens earlier. Uh, and then the second one in Luke 22, though very similar and sad because they have the same argument over again, uh, it says that a dispute arose among them about who was greatest in the kingdom. And so Jesus says to all of them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying the world, the, the rulers of the kingdoms of the world understand power and authority as something that you hang over people. You, you lord it over them. You rule with an iron fist. You conquer and you subjugate. Right? This was Machiavelli's view of leadership, his view of power. And we, we still see this today. But Jesus has flipped the concept on its head. He tells them that they will not operate under this paradigm. But rather, the greatest among them will be a servant. Then he sets himself up as the ultimate example for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He uses this Son of Man moniker for himself here to emphasize his humanity. It's, it's a title uh, that, that he is the unique representation of the human race. He is not merely human. He is the human, the true man. Then let's look at this second phrase came not to be served, but to serve. What does he mean by serve here? Again, our parallel passage is Luke chapter 22, where this conversation, again, as I said earlier, is taking place in the upper room where Jesus is about to serve his disciples by washing their feet. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Which is greater, the host or the guest or the waiter? And Jesus says, I'm actually the waiter. And this was meant to, to discombobulate the disciples. This is crazy. What is he talking about? How can the, how can the waiter be the one with authority, the one with power? 
This is not how leadership is supposed to work. But if you think about it for a second, if this is the way that, that, that leadership was always designed to operate by God, then isn't it rather that Jesus isn't turning leadership upside down, but rather he's actually turning it right side back up. The problem is our wicked corruption our hearts that are bent in on themselves and not ones that shine outwardly, not for self, but, but, for, but for others, re- reflecting the glory of God and the design of God. Jesus says, I'm here to make it right again. And I do it by giving my life as ransom for many. How will we respond to this? How will you respond? Christ gave his life up as ransom. If we understand this, then how can we seek our own anything? We started out by discussing Machiavelli and his views on Christ and Christianity and how it is weak and insufficient and and doesn't really work if you're trying to have power and authority. When Machiavelli died, on his tombstone is written this epitaph, so great a name has no adequate praise. Or or this, his name was so great, I couldn't even eulogize it. A man who desired greatness and taught how to use strength to control for personal benefit. He had power and leadership upside down the whole time. Pray tell me, how have all of those efforts of his benefited him after death? None. But the life of the person who serves, whether they have great power or none at all, that person has modeled themselves after their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has no grave on which there is any written any epitaph Because his power is the only real power that has real consequences, that has eternal significance, that has eternal consequences. Let's pray. Father, we, we, it's not hard for us to see the power struggles in our world or in our country. It's not hard for us to see power struggles in our cities. It's not hard to see power struggles in our homes. Sometimes it's not even hard to see power struggles in our own lives. 
and yet in attempts to grasp power, we are ultimately trying to accomplish the triumph of the self, the triumph of the ideology, the triumph of the, of the viewpoint, the political stance. And then Christ comes on to the historical scene and and shows us what real leadership looks like and, and what real power looks like. Because we see in Revelation that he has total power, total authority as execution of judgment takes place. And yet that doesn't happen apart from the exercise of servitude in his first earthly ministry. And so, Father, we don't want to be the ones who are looking at Revelation and saying, we want that power, we want to execute that now. But rather, we want to be ones who look at Christ as he ministers, as he speaks with his disciples, as he's patient, as he teaches, as he reaches to the brokenhearted, as he reaches to the outcast and the downtrodden, as he reaches to those with power and authority and begs them to see the right paradigm of leadership and power. Father, we want that. We want those to be the things that mark us. For how will people know who we follow apart from whether we model ourselves after who our master is? So, Father, as we think about how much power and authority we have in our lives, whether it be great or it be very little, the opportunity for service is always at our disposal. So, Father, help us be ones who put on Christ and model that service mentality. Not out of obligation, but out of great love and understanding for what has been done for us. Out of what he modeled for us so that we could be saved. And so that we can in turn, again, put on Christ and model him. For we pray that this day, this week, in Jesus' name.